and you go She's gone again On the south Oh, you're welcome, Neil. This yes. is hell. All right, then. Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is hell. Everything's being privatized. That's the idea under neoliberalism. Everything that once was a public good is sold off, supposedly, to the highest bidder. Desocializing it, if you will. All of those bloated government agencies and services in an effort to rein in costs while becoming more effective in providing the people with what they want, what they need, and what they demand. It's giving the efficient market power over everything, replacing what was publicly owned with bottom line for profit motivations of business. At least that's how it's supposed to work. However, more often than not, those services that were once cheap if not free, become incredibly expensive, and the way those services are distributed is based on private profit, not public demand. So what happens when the same neoliberal privatization is applied to our freedoms, like freedom of speech? What happens to what democracy we have when even our freedoms become privatized? We'll discuss the power private corporations legally have over our constitutionally protected rights in a few when we speak with Dr. Peter Bloom and Carl Rhodes, who co-wrote the Common Dreams article, Beware Corporate Democracy Washing. Twitter, Trump, and the danger of privatizing the fight against fascism, Twitter canceling Trump's account shows that real political power in the United States shifted from government to corporations. Peter's professor of management at the University of Essex, author of Rethinking Power, Resistance, and Politics in the Modern Age, and hosts the podcast Another Wor World is Potable, which you can find on Twitter at is Potable. His primary research interests include ideology, subjectivity, and power, specifically as they relate to broader issues and everyday practices of capitalism and democracy. Carl is professor of organization studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. His most recent book is Disturbing Business Ethics, Emmanuel Levinas and the Politics of Organization, which was published last year. Carl is currently working on a book titled Woke Capitalism, Democracy Under Threat in the Age of Corporate Righteousness. They are also co-authors of a book, and that title is not in front of me right now. Or is it? Yes, it is. They are co-authors of CEO Society, the Corporate Takeover of Everyday Life. Well, that was very exciting, jumping from page to page to get bios as I updated those right as we're about to go on the air. You can follow Carl on Twitter at Prof Carl Rhodes. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show podcast host, streaming live host, whatever host Chuck Mertz producing this morning's show is Alex Jerry. Alex, how was your weekend? That was good. You know, uh, Home Depot sells little woodworking kits to do with your kid so they can learn basic woodworking skills. Mm -hmm. And uh, they're free. And the real lesson in there is ideology because the two woodworking kits that I did with my kid this weekend uh, were we built an ATM and a battleship. <laughs> America, babe. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty hot to uh, oh, what a get a wood burning kit, too. <laughs> I love those wood burning kits. How many times did you have to uh, shovel your car out this weekend? Oh, just one. I spent two hours doing it this morning. I was going to say, and so because you, you're like me, you don't have a, a garage, right? No, street yeah, parking, baby. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say because I could not. I, my my weekend was well, it was really poorly scheduled. The idea was for the second weekend in a row to address my aching back by getting a new office chair and shoes. The plan was also to take down our tree, which is a huge project. But instead of going shopping first, we decided it was far better to finish with the tree before going shopping. And by the time the tree was in the alley. There was about a foot of snow covering our car, and from around 8.30 on Saturday night, when the storm was pretty much starting, till about 5.30 yesterday evening, a stretch of 21 hours, our street was not plowed according to the city's plow tracker website. It was like living in Detroit all over again. So our plans for the last two weekends have now extended into a third weekend as we again this coming weekend 
We'll attempt to get the new chair and shoes that my aching back so sorely needs. Speaking of my aching back, we got an email this weekend uh, from, and you can email us at chuck at thisishell.com, alex at thisishell.com, from Max in Berlin about my stupid aching back. Max writes, love the show. I've only been aware of it for a few months, but already it's introduced me to a number of wonderful books and people. Thanks. Not sure how appropriate this is, but since you've been mentioning your back trouble, I thought I'd share this. I had the same problem for years. Lower back pain would make me completely unable to do pretty much anything for several days, several times a year. One time my back cramped up while I was on my bike in the middle of a crossing. I could barely move and almost got killed as a result. I've always had that fear of my back giving out as I'm in a crosswalk. So... Max from Berlin writes, two changes I've made have completely eliminated my back trouble. First, I got rid of the -the run-of-the-mill foam mattress I'd been sleeping on and replaced it with a Japanese futon that was pricier but well worth the investment. The futon is firmer than the average mattress, and that seems to have made a big difference. I also sleep a lot better. Second, I made a few minutes of very basic stretches and lower back exercises a part of my morning routine. Nothing fancy or strenuous, just some beginner-level yoga at the lower back and abdominal area. I made those changes about three years ago go and haven't had back trouble since. Incidentally, because you mentioned replacing your chair, I've been sitting on an old wooden chair all my life, including at my desk where I would work completely pretty much all day, and I haven't needed any change to this, so hope this all can help. Cheers from Max in Berlin. Thanks for the advice, Max. I really appreciate it. My back problem is from a workplace injury, and about 10 years ago, we did get a new mattress, an incredibly firm mattress filled with bamboo, which does not sound comfortable, but it is. And it definitely helped my back. However, stretching in the morning, nothing too strenuous. That is a great idea. I've been uh, stretching before going to bed every night because you really got to limber up right before passing out, I guess. I don't know what my logic is about behind that instead of doing it in the morning. I mean, sleeping takes a lot of hard work, I guess, but you really need to stretch right before you go to sleep. So maybe, just maybe, makes a lot more sense to stretch your muscles at the beginning of the day instead of the end of the day. More important than any of that, Alex, what is this week's question from hell? This week's question from hell is, we're due for another mass cult movement, so what's their whole vibe going to be? What's their whole vibe going to be? I think it's going to be all centered on back pain. The uh, person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins your choice of whatever This Is Hell merchandise you want. You can go to thisishell.com right now and click on support and see all the ways you can support completely listener supported this is hell remember without you we got nothing so thanks for everything that you do for us you can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our facebook page facebook.com slash this is hell radio you can tweet it to us at this is hell radio you can email it to us but we have to have your answer by the end of thursday's show alex will be sharing some of your answers to this week's question from hell following our guests again the question from hell is we're due for another mass cult movement what's their whole vibe going to be thanks to everybody who went to this and clicked on support over the weekend if you go to this you can see all the ways you can support this is hell so thanks to everybody who supported this is hell and i'll be thanking you all in just a couple seconds Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we can be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell, and Alex has this week's hangover cure. This week's hangover cure is udon noodles in chicken curry soup. Which sounds delicious. According to an article posted last month at The Guardian, headlined, Readers Hangover Cures, 10 Ways to Beat the Post-Booze Blues, from Radiohead to Roll Mop Vinegar. Sho Ogawa, a brewer in British Columbia, Canada, says my recipe for udon noodles and chicken curry soup has every element I can think of that remedies hangovers. Soup for hydration, tomatoes for lycopene and vitamin C, ginger and hot peppers to help me sweat out the booze, and chicken thighs browned in oil or ghee for some grease to line my stomach. To start, I fry ginger, garlic, and cumin in a generous amount of oil, toss in some chicken thighs until browned, then add coriander, powdered chili pepper, and a large spoonful of turmeric. When the spices start releasing their aroma, I toss in some diced tomatoes and keep frying until the juices are reduced. Then add some dashi stock, sake, soy sauce, and sugar to nudge the soup closer to Japanese-style curry udon. I stew the whole thing while I cook my udon, then combine the soup and noodles in a basin-sized bowl. Makes this week's hammer cure udon noodles in a chicken curry soup. You do know what Romop vinegar is, right? Yeah, it's preferable to Radiohead if you're asking. <laughs> Romop vinegar, for people who don't know, it's a... Piece, it's a herring wrapped around a pickle, and then that soaks in brine. So it's the drinking of the pickle herring brine, which sounds actually 
incredible. Putting people before profit since 1996, this is hell. And if you want to contribute to our horrible business model of putting people before profits, you can go to thisishell.com and you can subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which happens every Friday live at 10 a.m., Chicago time is posted shortly after. If you sign up right now at patreon.com slash this is hell, you will get immediate access to over 150 Patreon podcasts. It's like an entire extra year of this is hell with new monologues by me and classic interviews that you cannot find anywhere else online right now. You can only hear them on Patreon. On this past Friday's Patreon podcast, we shared our 2006 interview with Mohammed Sahimi, a professor of chemical engineering and material science who holds the NIOC chair as in National Iranian Oil Company Chair in Petroleum Engineering at the University of Southern California in Los Angeles, Mohammed argued that Iran's nuclear program was legal, peaceful, and was falling within every treaty restriction and limit. No matter what the George W. Bush administration was claiming and trying to get the United States to go to war with yet another country, Mohammed was on back then to discuss an article he had just written with 2003 Nobel Peace Prize winner Shirin Abadi for the LA Times headline, Diffusing Iran with Democracy. It's all a reminder that, yes, there once was an anti-war movement here in the United States, and it wasn't that long ago, with seemingly no anti-war movement left, and both parties fighting over which one supports wars more, the U.S. is known more wars than ever. Meanwhile, in the past, we would do annual reviews of what we have learned here on This Is Hell. Problem was, we started learning so much stuff here on the show that instead of giving those reviews once a year, we had to do them every six months. Then with the show now being every day starting last year, we had to start giving those reviews quarterly every three months. Still, those reviews took way too much time, and the show is only an hour, so if you want to hear everything that we've learned on This Is Hell over the first month, you're going to have to do one of two things. You're going to have to listen to the show every day in January, every one of those shows, or subscribe to our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell. So every month you can get a, a summary of what we have learned here on the show. Of course, we'd prefer you do both, listen every day and subscribe as well. But if you miss a show or two during the month and want to know what you missed, you are going to need to become a Patreon patron. And we've learned a lot in only the first month of 2021 from the unique brutality of slavery in the United States and its lasting legacy to the difficulty in explaining issues affecting indigenous lives when so many in the U.S. are in denialism about the ongoing horrors of colonization, settlement, and genocide that still impact the indigenous, indigenous lives every day. No, that genocide is not a thing of the past. But you can only hear our 2006 interview with Mohammed Sahimi on the George W. Bush administration trying to get the U.S. into another war and our review of what we learned on the show in the first month of 2021 by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. One last thing, real quick, before we get to our guests, we've been asking whether we should adhere to our rule that is really a guideline, and that is... No one from big politics or big business on the show because they are seemingly the only people given access to the media and the more establishment media, I should say. And as this is not the media, this is hell, we don't fill our airtime with their nonsense. So we asked last summer, should we have politicians on the show? And every one of you except one listener said no. We asked again at the beginning of this year because we were getting emails to have as a guest on This Is Hell, Shama Sawant, a Seattle City Councilwoman who is in a political fight with Amazon and Jeff Bezos. Joshua writes to us at chuckatthisishell.com. Hi, Chuck. Thanks, as always, for the show. My opinion is that you should only go against that no politicians guideline if there isn't a competent organizer or other party to have on the show and there aren't reasonably good interviews elsewhere. For example... I'm sure you'd have other questions to ask, but listeners can already hear interviews with Shama Sawant elsewhere. Best, John. And that's pretty much what each and every one of you has said. So we will continue to adhere to our nobody from big politics or big business guideline until the next time someone asks us to have some politicians on the show, and we'll likely ask you again. Keep in mind, we turned down an interview with Bernie Sanders in 2011 because of this stupid no politicians guideline. And think how rich and famous we'd be right now if we'd only hitched our star to Bernie's red wagon. Noam Chomsky called This Is Hell Sanity in talk radio so clearly and sadly Noam's gone insane. This is hell. Coming up, corporate greenwashing gave consumers the impression businesses were environmentally friendly. When they were not... Now, get ready for democracy washing. We will also have some of your answers to this week's question from Mel, which is, 
We're due for another mass cult movement. What's their whole vibe going to be? We're due for another mass cult movement. What's their whole vibe going to be? And we'll tell you what's coming up on this week's, uh, rest of the shows this week here on This Is Hell. Like I said, this is not the media. This is hell. The power of private capital has expanded greatly under what is called neoliberalism, the privatization of what was once public. That power has increased so much, corporations now have power over some of the very rights we are guaranteed in the Constitution. Here to help us understand exactly how much power corporations have legally obtained and what it means for democracy, Dr. Peter Bloom and Carl Rhodes co-wrote the Common Dreams article, Beware Corporate Democracy. You can follow Follow Carl on Twitter at Prof Carl Rhodes, and you can follow Peter on Twitter at P Bloom BK. Peter is a lecturer at the Department of oh, Wrong Bio. See, I have so many bios for you right now, it's crazy. Peter. Peter is professor of management at the University of Essex, author of Rethinking Power, Resistance, and Politics in the Modern Age, and hosts the podcast Another World Is Potable, which you can find on Twitter at I.S. Potable. Welcome to This Is Hell, Peter. Oh, thank you very much for having us. And Carl is Professor of Organization Studies at the University of Technology, uh, Sydney. His most recent book is Disturbing Business Ethics, Emmanuel Levinas and the Politics of Organization, which was published last year. Again, you can follow Carl on Twitter at Prof. Carl Rhodes. Thank you, Carl, for being on the show as well. Thanks for inviting me, Chuck. Good to be here. So let's start with you, Carl. Why not? You write, watching the uh, capital storm by a far-right mob was a tragic, if not the all-too-predictable result of four years of Trumpism. And uh, Peter, if you want to follow up on this question, or either of you think the other person is uh, more appropriate for answering a question, feel free to direct it to the other person. But it seemed to me it was so predictable that even I predicted it back during the armed lockdown protesters at the Michigan State Capitol back in late April, early May, and my predictions are historically wrong. So, Carl, the 24-7 news networks here in the States dedicated nearly all of their programming for the past five years to President Trump. Those same outlets all expressed surprise and shock when it came to the events of January 6th. Carl, to you, what explains that amount of attention given to Trump and those same networks then being surprised by what you see as an all-too-predictable result of Trumpism? Yeah, great question, Chuck. I mean, uh, predictable in the sense that, you know, the kind of rabble-rousing populism that, that we saw from Trump was very much designed to kind of, you know, excite people into into this kind of action. And we, we saw it uh, many times at the way he addressed his, his political rallies, um, uh, really working with, with uh with people's uh, fears and insecurity in a, in a very emotional way. I mean, and also, I mean, whether the media say that they were surprised by this, I mean, we might want to take that with a pinch of salt as well. I mean, them being surprised was, uh, was I mean, the whole show of Trump, the whole kind of theater of, of Trump was a, a great commercial opportunity uh, for the media. I mean, if you even turn back to the time that he was campaigning uh, four and five years ago, I mean, you know, CNN really kind of cashed in on that. So the media has been very much a part of this as, you know, on the one hand, people who might uh, be supportive of Trump's ideas, you know, get uh, become attracted to, to these media outlets. But even, even those of us who find Trump really, uh, you know, a quite horrendous kind of character, it's almost we're drawn to watching it the way that you kind of rub a neck at a car accident and you just can't take your eyes off it. So I think um, if there was anything as much as predictable as the riots, it was predictable that uh, um, uh, that it would become yet again a huge spectacle of uh, of what's become of uh, public discourse uh, in this age of Trump. Well, Peter, so just following up on what uh, Carl was just saying, Twitter and other social media platforms are being held responsible for spreading the message of the Trump administration, especially by the establishment news media. Can or should the establishment news media be held responsible for spreading the word and the vision of Donald Trump? I, I think absolutely. And, and, and I think that following up on like what Carl said, one of the key parts about this was that Underneath the spectacle 
there is a huge rise in white nationalism and quite fascist ideologies. And this has been made then to a profitable media industry, right? It's something to gawk at. It's something that, look how dangerous this is. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Look how much our ratings are. Now, what, what becomes even more problematic about this is the fact that really strong journalism and media that could actually provide systemic critiques and solutions to this, they aren't as ratings profitable, right? Moreover, the people who own the media company, they would much rather point about this kind of, you know, white nationalism. They would much rather point to this fascism as look how deplorable, quote unquote, this is, than actually understanding its root causes that could actually put their profits in danger. So I think they're definitely at stake with this. I also think that there's a very interesting dynamic in which they play with, which is that there has been attempts to create civic accountability through things like cancel culture. But this has in itself become something that's been a kind of profitable viral industry for the media to report. And deeper conversations about who should be canceled and why are just not had. I mean, for instance, I think it's excellent that potentially, you know, you hold accountability for, you know, lessening the uh, media visibility of people who have been accused of sexual assault or people who have, you know, displayed quite racist attitudes in the past. Meanwhile, people, and you know, I, I hope not to be too provocative, but people like Hillary Clinton, who literally in terms of white power, you know, helped to support and legitimize uh, a coup in Honduras, she hasn't been canceled at all. So I think that it's very interesting to watch how these very important issues are made into a media spectacle that are profitable. And then the established media kind of puts themselves in this very heroic mode of, aren't we so much better than these social media companies? And Carl, you and Peter also write that equally predictable was how social media corporations would suddenly dump Trump, recasting themselves on the side of democracy against fascism, as Peter was just pointing out. For many, even on the left, this highly publicized banning of Trump is hugely welcome. Others saw it as setting a dangerous precedent for privately backed censorship. But Carl, privately backed censorship, that is constitutional as free speech protects citizens from censorship by the state here in the United States and not by private entities, is the only option in stopping privately backed censorship to deprivatize those kinds of communication platforms, making it a public asset, uh, nationalizing communications for it to fall under First Amendment free speech rights. Is that our only option? Well, I mean, it's interesting. I mean, we've come so far with with uh, neoliberalism, the idea of, of nationalizing uh, uh, media or nationalizing public communication. I mean, it almost sounds like a kind of unrealistic utopia that uh, that's kind of fanciful. And I think that's probably less of an effect of what's possible and more of an effect of, of where we've come. I mean, uh, through nationalization or regulation of, of some kind, I mean, there is free speech, of course, as you say, in the US constitutionally, but that doesn't allow, you know, people who make movies to broadcast anything that they want. They're subject to uh, to rules and regulations designed by the public, uh, by public institutions um, in terms of what, in terms of ratings and in terms of, of what's permissible. But again, that's been largely eroded um, uh, through um, uh, through internet internet based media. So some form of so regulation in some sense, but certainly questions of democratic questions of of what constitutes uh, free speech and related to that. What, you know, where is the border between free speech and inciting people to violence and, and hate speech? I mean, these have been debates recently happening around uh, around the world. But the point is, I mean, on the one hand, you know, you, me or anybody might have a particular position on what the answer should be. But I think the real question is no one person on account of uh, of their economic power or no one institution on account of its economic power should be making these uh, kind of decisions. They should be through some form of process of democratic deliberation um, uh, and, and reasoning. Um, and although democratic processes don't always come out with the right decision either, but that's kind of not the point. It's, it, it should not be, um, as we saw with Twitter, that financial might gives one the right to make decisions of uh, who can and cannot say what. I mean, in a sense, it is, you know, as was just being said, 
kind of cancel culture. And if you look at what happened with with Twitter, um, uh, they canceled Trump quite literally cancelling his account. This wasn't a, a metaphorical cancelling. It was quite literal ca- cancelling. Um, but on the other hand, you know, they've done pretty well out of him over the last four years with the, you know, God knows how many followers um, on his account. I think they saw the winds of change um, and they dumped yesterday's man. It was entirely, uh, it appears to be entirely a pragmatic uh, decision on their part. Certainly not uh, one that's driven by any uh, any sense of democratic principle, even though that's how how it was made uh, how it was made to appear. So again, we see private interests uh, taking over uh, dimensions of the public domain domain in which they really have no business at all. And Peter, you and Carl write that this is not to say that hateful rhetoric should not be shut down. However, it does highlight the peril in allowing these tech firms to profit from that rhetoric politically. Remember, these are the same corporations that have been commercially benefiting from authoritarianism's resurgence over the past decade. They profited, so they profited from spreading hate, and then when that hate they that helped spread, hate they were complicit in, hate they profited from, displays itself uh, not only in the virtual world, but the one of reality. They're suddenly protecting us from fascism. Should, or, or how dependent, Peter, do you think is social media on hate? How bad is it for social media's stock value, for their bottom line, when it no longer provides a platform for hate? It, can it be sustained without being a platform for hate as well? I think, well, I mean, I, I think that there's um, a really important question you're asking here, which is that to what extent can we allow big tech and social media to benefit from supporting non-democratic rhetoric, hateful rhetoric, and also oftentimes paradoxically through democratic language, non-democratic practices. So, I mean, following on quickly to Carl's answer, I mean, I think there are a number of alternatives and I'm happy to talk in more detail about how this could come under public ownership, community ownership, and democratic control from the ground up, right? And there's lots of examples lots of interesting ways to do this. But what that would do is, as Carl said, it would ensure that we're actually having democratic control and deliberation about this. And also that these don't become monopolies for deciding about what we hear and don't hear, and that they don't become basis to profit off of our political preferences, whatever they are. And I, and I think that's, that, that's a key aspect. And, and what you have seen here then in the last 10 years, really, is that social media has on an, a kind of explicit level profited off hate, right? I mean, they made it into a spectacle. They've definitely been able to create echo chambers and demographics that benefit them in this way. And they've been really, really strong in getting followers from that, but more importantly, getting the data from those followers in terms of this. It also helps them in terms of these kinds of controversies because this gives more attention to their platforms. It allows them to benefit and profit off it. And it situates them as dominant media sites for people to exchange ideas and communication. I think the other part of that though, that that come quite you know, less apparent is what is being covered and not. So in this sense, you know, we call this a, a certain aspect of democracy, democracy washing because right now there are very strong movements within tech industry and social media for unionization and economic democracy. And by being able to present themselves as some kind of all of a sudden democratic saviors, right? They are being able to present themselves as people who are for democracy while they're actually repressing it in their everyday practices and organizational dynamics. And this is gonna become increasingly important because they want to delimit what democracy is to a kind of very narrow notion of free speech that fits within their corporate interest. And by, howing to monopolize what we do get covered in here through all sorts of predictive governance and algorithms so that we ignore the fact that they're actually suppressing democracy all around the world in terms of their own imperialism corporate interests and quote unquote at home in terms of the the people who are working for these organizations so i think that they're you know profiting off democracy and they're profiting off hate on any number of different levels so, Carl, uh, the, the problem, though, is these corporations are supposedly, they're not only protecting us from far-right fascists and fascism, they're also protecting us from those on the extreme left, too. So, Carl, can corporations be 
fair and objective by disallowing not only far-right fascists, but extreme left communists, if you will, as well? Can they equally protect us from both the far-right and far-left extremism? And, and what's wrong with silencing extremism? Um, uh, silencing extremism, I mean, essentially what's wrong with it, if you like, is is there's nothing wrong per se. The, the What's wrong is the decision of who and which institutions have the right to make decisions on this silencing and do those institutions represent the interest of the public or do they represent a series of private interests and so the issue here is not so much uh the, the, the silencing of on, on the far right or the far, far left but more about the the basis of democracy and who who gets to side? And in a sense, you know, historically, there's, there's, uh, if you look at it globally, there's a, there's a contradiction in a sense between between private power, but also control of the over the media by uh, by governments. You know, can easily lead to to excessive political power and uh, and you know propagandizing and uh, and so forth. So there is, uh, you know, we need to kind of balance in a sense between between particular kind of groups of people and institutions having the power to make these decisions instead of them being embedded more in a democratic process and in the broader suite of uh, democratic institutions including you know the media including uh, uh, universities including uh, the legislature and so forth in order to make these decisions so you know, it's not so much. I mean, was I pleased that Trump can no longer, you know, stir up trouble on on Twitter? Part of me was, but on the other hand, the fact that it was left up to a self-serving corporation to make that decision, I think, suggests a much deeper problem, even than Trump itself. And this is the broader problem of where we've come to with. Uh, with neoliberalism, that corporations have this power, and in a sense, they, you know, and in pursuing this power, at an age where corporate wealth things increase significantly, um, where the pandemic has made the inequalities of that even worse. I mean, Oxfam recently called, you know, these billionaire folks the pandemic profiteers, who have, you know, really benefited hugely financially as a result of everyone else's misery. Um, to believe suddenly that they're kind of some kind of, you know, woke people focused Democrats, you know, who care about anything from, you know, climate change to dealing with toxic masculinity. I mean, it's kind of ludicrous in a sense. So there's this broader question of what interests are being served by this rather than so it's not just it's not just a pragmatic decision about what the decision is but very much the principled process of how are these decisions arrived and who has the power to make them so peter do you think that the banning of trump for um, from social media platforms like twitter do you think that's a sign that social media is transforming to a more socially responsible platform will we look back at this as a mere moment at the beginning of the medium of growing pain that they're moving to a business model that does not benefit and profit from hate? Uh, honestly, um, absolutely not. Um, and, and I don't want to be overly cynical, but I think we need to be clear-eyed about this. So I think on the one hand, they're already using this as an opportunity to silence other critics. So, I mean, Facebook, um, it's been reported, it has been, you know, uh, trying to stymie and censor left-wing perspectives that are considered quote-unquote radical. Simultaneously, I think that they're just opportunistic, right? And so right now the mood is these this needs to be banned. I think that if there's ratings involved, if there's ways to profit off it, right, then they'll find other reasons in which to support this. But I think that the, the larger aspect is that we shouldn't leave this up to the quote unquote social responsibility of social media. These are not neutral platforms. They are platforms that have their own political agenda, their own economic agenda. And at the end of the day, they're going to be able to do and use and wield their power. I mean, they're already uh, under investigation, obviously, and, and charged with all sorts of antitrust uh, allegations. So they're going to use this monopolization for their benefit. And I, and I think it goes to a point that we made previously is that when they get to decide what's democratic or not or what's socially responsible, 
that's very dangerous. So to return to something that we mentioned earlier, it might be good that we say, this is excellent that you're getting rid of Donald Trump, right? But what are you also then saying about people that you are supporting? Are you saying that people who, you know, aren't as quote unquote, obviously extreme, but support, you know, anti-democratic coups around the world that they did, that they deserve to be on, right? Well, for uh, Twitter, um, certainly because it doesn't hurt their bottom line and in many ways, actually, it benefits their bottom line. So I think there's a huge danger about letting corporations and notions of corporate social responsibility, which have been an abject failure for the most part um, in dealing with other grand challenges that we have, such as climate change, to be the arbitrator of what is or is not dangerous to our democracy. Carl, you and Peter cite a past guest on our show, acclaimed sociologist Walden Bellow, who noted that the capital events represented a similar strategy to earlier fascists who used street violence to have their political demands met while undermining fundamental democratic institutions. As Peter was just mentioning social media's own political and economic agenda, how effective can corporations be at avoiding or even stopping street violence, keeping in mind their own political and economic agenda? How good of a job can they do at stopping fascism? Well, uh, in this case, on the one hand, you have uh, Twitter doing this banning, um, uh, but also by doing that, they, they serve to draw even more attention if that was needed. I mean, you know, these events were, were broadcast on media, again, you know, to, to Peter's point, to, to great ratings as this group of, you know, um, uh, it's hard even to describe this, the images of this motley crew of people storming through the Capitol, you know, like they're in some kind of fancy dress uh, kind of process. I mean, you know, if it wasn't so horrendous, it, it would be, uh, it, it would be comical. Um, uh, so, you know, uh, in, in effect, the, the the business decisions are, are kind of wrapped up in all in all of that as well. In terms of uh, in terms of the spectacle of the whole um, uh, of the whole event that, that was kind of broadcast around the world. Um, so, in a sense, you know, it does stop it. But again, you know, the media companies are uh, swaying with the wind. Of uh, in a sense, I mean, uh, they're seeing that Trump is. Uh, is rapidly losing the election, that, that uh, his so-called base, his, his followers are engaging in these, you know, increasingly uh, ludicrous attempts at, I mean, you know, it's not really a serious attempt at a coup, I don't think, it's almost kind of play-acting coup d'etat, um, and they've just decided, well, you know, things are moving on, Biden's coming in, we've got to uh, move on with the times for our own interests, and I think that's really what this is a sign of as much of uh, as much as as anything else. Um, one can only hope that the change in public sentiment that that uh, uh, that this represents, even though a narrow change in the U.S. judging by the voting figures, will have some uh, will have some uh, sway, um, particularly with with uh, companies, you know, retail companies. Who at least will, uh, if anything, they will respond to to customers to the extent that they can attract more customers for their own interests. And Peter, you and Carl also write that for decades, businesses of all types have expounded their heroic role in filling regulatory gaps when it comes to economic matters. With the Trump social media ban, this has come full circle to encompass political and democratic matters as well. So, Peter, are corporations replacing the state as the chief arbiter of regulating not only economic matters, but political and democratic matters as well? And what would you call a state that is regulated by corporations? So I, I think that on the one hand, we have to be careful because the corporations are certainly um, influencing deeply and helping to shape our economic and our delivery of our services. However, it's important to recognize that they're doing so completely on the back of government subsidies. So in the sense, what you have is this, you know, hugely, I think you could almost call it unplanned state economy in which we're subsidizing corporations to deliver increasingly poor services to their profit, right? So I don't think any listener, when we talk about this, should have any uh, kind of illusion that these are come some kind of self-sufficient um, and, and, you know, pull up by your bootstrap, 
don't need the state for help to survive organizations. Quite the opposite. They only survive based on our tax revenue and the fact that they're given massive state subsidies and contracts. I think, though, what you are going to see, though, is a ways in which they're going to continually promote the fact that, quote unquote, private solutions rather than publicly owned or democratically controlled solutions are the only way in which to achieve kind of good outcomes. And interestingly, I think that they're going to continue to kind of profit off this strange dynamic where, on the one hand, they make huge profits from the spectacle of authoritarianism, um, and, and they also make quite a bit of money from actual authoritarian technologies, like surveillance technologies all around the world. And they're going to make huge profits off, you know, this kind of reputation oftentimes of being, you know, the saviors of democracy. And I think that until we're actually able to see that they're part of the problem, not part of the solution, right? And we're actually able to take seriously alternatives that would be about, you know, public ownership, that would be about, you know, democratic accountability and control and understanding the ways in which they are actors that are in many ways creating a rigged system for themselves, that this cycle of profiteering of both authoritarianism and the quote unquote resistance to authoritarianism is going to continue. And, and I do think that there's several historical names for this. I mean, you have oligarchy, um, which is, you know, an increasingly popular term for it. And technically, I think that it has been shown that the US is an oligarchy with formal democratic features. Um, but I also think that, uh, as Bella said, like we are moving potentially towards a much more dangerous, a, a much more fascist aspect. And, and, you know, while the images on the TV could have had a certain absurdity, the ways in which all of a sudden you're beginning to see types of street violence and paramilitary force come to displace democratic institutions and democratic deliberation. And further, as you're seeing democracy itself being seen as less of an actual popular decision-making body or an ability to make serious change and more as just something that reinforces a quite non-democratic status quo, this is where you do have the conditions of fascism. And I think it's very important that for our purposes, we don't have any uh, mistakes to think that people like the Democrats right now in power are sufficient in and of themselves to stop that. In fact, if there was going to be anything like a popular front, it would have to be based on very clear progressive alternatives of real serious democratic change. So, Carl, uh, go ahead. So I just wanted to 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 just build on on the things that that Peter was uh, was saying there because, and and also to your question, we need to be important. I think it's important also that we don't imagine that the economic sphere and the political sphere are in are independent. This is a kind of political economic kind of situation, and if we look at the kind of democratic uh, interference that we do see from corporations, it's as much interesting to look at the things that they're not concerned with as much as the ones that they are concerned with. So we don't see corporations intervening so much in the regulation of corporations. We don't see them intervening in corporate tax reform to uh, prevent tax avoidance by major corporations, a huge problem. We don't see them um, involved in debates over the limiting of excessive uh, executive pay. Or on the other side, we don't see them trying to raise the minimum wage. And in a sense, the kind of these kind of policies, these direct economic policies that have allowed inequality to exacerbate, I mean, are arguably the very policies that led to the conditions that created that created the the, the ground that enabled Trump's crude populism to be popular. Um, so in the longer term, it's it's an avoidance of inequality as the core democratic issue globally today that is not being addressed. And it's this which allowed this kind of, you know, I don't know, proto-fascism to, to emerge in the first place. Neoliberalism set the conditions that enabled Trump. It's really giving far too much credit to, to this single uh, person, Donald Trump, to say that it was all him. I mean, he took advantage of a situation that was set up by decades of uh, of of uh, policy reform, particularly you know post the 1970s and 80s, to blame Trump is convenient, but is also a way of avoiding responsibility. 
So it's okay to see Joe Biden come to the White House and sign a whole lot of pieces of paper to de-Trump various policies. But the real question is, what can be done about reversing the conditions of inequality that have allowed this form of populism um, and uh, fascism to appear both in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world? Peter, following up on what uh, Carl said real quick, you also write that only a week after big business made a public break with Trump, they were already hoping that things would go back to business as usual. While CEOs highlight their desire for robust stimulus and vaccine programs, their real aspiration is to avoid having this insurrection spark real systemic change. Peter, do CEOs then, in your estimation, always want us on the edge of insurrection, but never actually completing it and actually implementing it? I think that it's much more interesting to, to say that they're opportunistic and pretty insatiable and taking advantage and profiting of any situation. Um, and, and I think that for this point, it's more about maintaining their influence and power, kind of delimiting what is legitimate or not legitimate to talk about, or if you're not saying what's legitimate, then at least saying what's popular to talk about. Um, and then also taking advantage of conditions to their benefit. So I, I think, you know, for instance, uh, the, the movement against mass incarceration, right, in private prisons, that's, a, that's been a really, really important movement, right? But they've been quickly able to swoop in and create mass supervision systems that aren't about imprisoning people, but are about surveilling people and having all sorts of profit from this basis, right? So I think, you know, we always have to see the ways in which that they're insatiable in terms of taking advantage and making things into new markets for their profit and power. What I would also say, though, is the fact that I think they are really looking at business as usual as well, because they would like to frame this as just a matter of kind of, you know, radicalism, white nationalism versus, you know, moderate democracy and possibility for reform. And to an extent, I mean, we shouldn't downplay for a moment the danger of these ideologies, right? But we have to actually take seriously and listen to what some of them are saying. So QAnon, which is a, a, a complete conspiracy theory, very dangerous, but it is, you know, showing a symptomatic desire to question uh, what is called the deep state, you know, the military, the CIA, the NSA. And it shouldn't be forgotten that Trump kind of under the radar, got a lot of support in communities by going against supposed militarism. We're not going to go on unnecessary wars that leaves your child dead for no reason, right? And by not addressing these things, they're taking advantage of the fact that on the one hand, right, it goes back to normal and it benefits them because there's a huge trillion dollar weapons industry that is bipartisan in its support, right? And it also, you know, points to this idea that, you know, you can have, quote unquote, democracy at home, but you don't have to support it abroad. And then simultaneous to that, right, is that it can continue to profit off what they, you know, this is going to be an ongoing spectacle of they are now the saviors of democracy fighting against these horrible, dangerous extremists. So I think that we have to really, really take seriously how they want to go back to the user world because back to usual profited them and work to their advantage. And they also want to stoke all sorts of kind of quote unquote social divisions in ways that doesn't lead to systemic questioning of their own power and ways we can make fundamental change. So, Carl, obviously, you know that I'm going to quote Benito Mussolini now. Uh, Mussolini <laughs> once said fascism should more appropriately be called corporatism because it is a merger of state and corporate power. Is the corporate fight against fascism a step toward Mussolini's corporatism, which is fascism? Are corporations, by fighting fascism, leading us to fascism? Um, it's quite possible, I suppose. I mean, I mean, this, the dealing with fascism by corporations you know, that we've seen recently is kind of a new thing. It's certainly leading to, uh, to an increased... Uh, I mean, there's a long process um, uh, that's occurred in terms of the growth of... Uh, of, of corporate power that, that we've seen leading leading up up to today, um, and and these recent events are kind of uh, a symptom of that. So it's certainly leading to growth in corporatocracy, if you want to use another um, somewhat clumsy word. Um, uh, whether that will lead to fascism, 
maybe a particular kind of uh, kind of uh, fascism. I mean, you probably weren't thinking that I was going to quote Milton Friedman, uh, who said <laughs> that the only responsibility of business is to pursue the interests of shareholders. Now, many people have argued that with corporate social responsibility and, and woke capitalism, that's that's all changed and, and businesses are pursuing a wider set of interests. In my view, uh, Milton Friedman's uh, credo is still being followed and the interests of shareholders are being pursued above and beyond everyone else. It's now just been doing happening in a much more sophisticated uh, way. So, I mean, it's interesting to talk about fascism, but where I don't think we're talking necessarily about uh, the fascism of, you know, mid-century Europe with uh, Hitler and Mussolini. I think we need to look at what's happening kind of on its on its own terms as well. I mean, and whether that is some kind of neo-fascism or, or whether it's even, you know, just a, a return to a kind of uh, plutocratic uh, feudalism is, in a, is, is another... Uh, is another question. I mean, an interesting thought experiment uh, here is that uh, when Elon Musk lands on Mars and creates the uh, the colony that uh, has been promised, what will be the political organization of this brand new colony? Will it be uh, a nobility led by Elon um, or will it be a democratic state? Um, I'll leave you to ponder that. I like how you saw my quote by Mussolini, and you raised it with a quote by Milton Friedman. <laughs> I like that very much. Uh, Peter, you write that in reality, social media's sudden moral awakening is in many ways just as troubling and a threat to democracy as their enabling of far-right populism. It reflects the transformation of authoritarianism into a profitable and viral phenomenon. Is big tech, Peter, is big tech a greater threat to democracy by canceling Trump, by shutting down the hate being spread by the far-right and fascists? Is capital power even a greater threat to democracy? Well, I think they're both a threat. Um, and, and I think that the danger is to take our eyes off the ways in which they are a fundamental threat to our democracy. And, and I think that one of the ways in which we can decolonize our mindset is to understand that, you know, there is movements that are high tech forms of authoritarianism around the world right now, right? We see it at home, quote unquote, uh, in terms of things like the militarization of the police. But really, I mean, what you're seeing is a kind of, you know, data-led authoritarian financial complex where authoritarianism is a big business, right? Data surveillance is a big business. Militarization is a big business. So I think that there is a huge danger in just saying, okay, we've now canceled some of the far-right rhetoric and one, thinking that it goes away right? That, okay, well, it's not on Twitter anymore. It's not on Facebook, out of sight, out of mind, right? But secondly, to think that, okay, all of a sudden, you know, Twitter, Facebook, that, that they are allies of democracy, right? And the more that we're able to actually show that these are connected systemic problems, and that there are democratic alternatives, ones that are around shared ownership, ones that are around commons development and ones that are around public democracy and public regulation, the more that they're going to be seen as really insufficient towards protecting even the very modicum or small vestige of democracy that is liberal democracy. Carl, you and Peter also write that the 21st century, like the century before it, has already witnessed the insidious use of the language of democracy to spread U.S. imperialism. The liberation of Iraq cost them hundreds of thousands of lives and decades of development. Meanwhile, corporations made billions from the conflict. So, Carl, has democracy become a brand? What happens to the meaning of democracy when it becomes a matter of corporate marketing and branding? Well, I mean, the short answer is that it becomes uh, de-democratized. And I guess in, in the, the American sense of, of spreading democracy around the world, uh, to use those particular terms, often through violent means. Now, I, you know, a number of people quipped in the media at the events of the Capitol that if this was happening in any of the other country, America would have to invade um, to save to save uh, democracy. So I think the, you know, the, the so-called uh, military industrial complex of the US um, is very much a complex with, with uh, military action 
being very much related to economic interests more generally and corporate interests uh, uh, specifically, um, uh, much of it revolving around uh, oil. Um, if we talk about uh, issues in, in uh, the Middle East. But I think there's a, also a broader dimension of uh, kind of corporate branding with not necessarily, not only democratic uh, causes, but also more broadly progressive causes. And there's, there's, a, there's an associate, uh, you know, what's, uh, what people call uh, woke capitalism has been about corporations adopting various political positions traditionally associated with the left, whether it be about environmentalism or uh, or sexism or same-sex marriage and so forth and so on. So we've seen corporations also supporting uh, uh, these kind of political causes. But again, you know, there's always a, an economic motive uh, built into this. So I think the, demo, the, the branding of corporations as democratic certainly has been a long-standing uh, has, has been a long-standing relationship um, uh, but what's even more worrying these days is the association of corporations with progressive politics um, and with, with certain issues of progressive politics and again taking those things over when Jeff uh, Bezos donates or pledges eight billion dollars to deal with climate change one has to wonder you know, is this because of his generous nature or is it because he wants to control the agenda from his own business, which uh, which relies entirely on uh, extractive industries and fossil fuels in order to ship those packages uh, all over the place and the various other things that they do? We I have. Think, uh, go ahead, Peter. Oh, sorry about that. Like, I think also to follow up on that is that we've already seen the ways in which, as you've said, um, democracy has become an international thing. So, for instance, international aid has become a huge branding where democracy comes to sort of the signifier, right? This is kind of like we're having all these democratic things that are really about actually spreading market-led solutions for leaders with horrible human rights records. So, in a certain sense, we've seen the ways in which places like Rwanda, right, which has been like seen as this massive success story with huge Clinton Foundation support, okay, but has a really appalling human rights record. And this human rights record is justified under the quote, it's democratic and the president gets things done, right? So I think that we're already understood in knowing that democracy not only has served as a neoconservative ability to say, we're invading you in the name of democracy, but on an everyday level, it's come to serve as a brand for promoting you know, quite uh, exploitative and quite repressive regimes around the world in the name of quote unquote democratic progress. We have been speaking with Peter Bloom and Carl Rhodes, co-authors of the Common Dreams article, Beware Corporate Democracy Washing, Twitter Trump and the Danger of Privatizing the Fight Against Fascism. Peter is professor of management at the University of Essex, author of Rethinking Power, Resistance and Politics in the Modern Age and hosts the podcast Another World is Potable, which you can find on Twitter at ISPotable. Carl is professor of organization studies at the University of Technology, Sydney. His most recent book is Disturbing Business, Business Ethics, Emmanuel Levinas and the Politics of Organization, which was published last year. Carl is currently writing a new book, Woke Capitalism, Democracy Under Threat in the Age of Corporate Righteousness. And when that book comes out, Carl, you can expect us to be bothering you to have you back on the show. You can follow Carl on Twitter at Prof. Carl Rhodes and follow Peter on Twitter at P. Bloom BK. They are also co-authors of the 2018 book, CEO Society, The Corporate Takeover of Everyday Life. Peter and Carl, the final question for each and every one of our guests is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, or our audience is going to hate your response. As Peter just commented, let's, let's start with you, Carl. Carl, what do you think... What do you think Fox News viewers miss, if anything, when they do not blame capitalism for President Trump being deplatformed, being kicked off of big tech platforms and social media outlets, that the problem is the power of the market, the market they say they support, and not the power of government? What do Fox News uh, viewers miss when they think that this is something, that this is a censorship, when they don't realize it's, it's censorship by market instead of by capital or by government 
I think they miss any appreciation of um, of political history and what's really got us to this point. Instead, being lost up, lost in the moment, with uh, with no sense of what got us to this position. That was a very brief and very good answer to the question from Hal, Peter. For you, one of the things that people have been discussing is should the capital the people who are suspected of rioting in the capital, should they, they be charged with sedition? That is, was this an attempt to overthrow the government? When it comes to private censorship to what and the rhetoric that we have been hearing from business for so long, from pro-business groups for so long, is their rhetoric sedition? I would be hesitant to call their rhetoric uh, sedition. However, um, I'd also be really worried about the fact that you are now looking at what's happening and that there's a, you know, a securitization discourse that is very much around, you know, national security and a kind of putting inward a war on terror notion. Um, but I would say that they should be definitely viewed as people who are against the very fundamental principles that supposedly our country represents in its best phase and its best spirit. Peter and Carl, I cannot thank you enough for being on the show this week to starting off our week of broadcast. This was a really great conversation and your writing is exceptional. And our listeners should go check out the work that you've done. Beware Corporate Democracy Washing, which was published at Common Dreams. Our guests have been Dr. Peter Bloom and Carl Rhodes. Again, you can follow uh, Carl on Twitter at Prof. Carl Rhodes and follow Peter on Twitter at P. Bloom BK. Thank you so much for being on our show this morning. Uh, thank you. Yep. Thank you very much for, for letting us talk to you. And Carl, again, I'll be annoying you in an email, I'm certain. And Peter, thank you so much for Please being on our do. show. All right. Thank you. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. Alex, please remind us, what is this week's question, Mel? And how are our listeners answering so far? Uh, miss my button. Okay. This week's question from hell. You're starting to say that more than I do. Yeah, I'm starting to miss my button more than you do. This <laughs> week's question from hell is, we're due for another mass cult movement, so what's their whole vibe going to be? We're due for another mass cult movement. What's their whole vibe going to be? scroll down okay andrew p says drinking the blood of the rich after properly guillotining them mm. Stephen v says just walk out the effing door dude they're everywhere <laughs> don't tell me to walk out my door <laughs> fabio l says unions i might revisit that john t one once i uh, figure out what he's talking about oh ron popeel is the inventor of the bass master so there you go lonzo l says cast masters lonzo l says lonza l says hank hill sadists and masochists exercising their free speech with Propane and propane accessories. Oof, uh, Speaking of deplatforming people, oof, uh, <laughs> uh, Michael D says random hugging cult. Oof, I heard somebody, a sexologist, which is a horrible term, over the holidays say that I understand there's a real problem right now because people are skin hungry. That was her term for hugging people. Skin hungry. <laughs> Ugh. Ugh. Continue. We're due for another mass cult movement. What's their whole vibe going to be? Aaron B says, the stock market. Jeremy T says, hashtag vote blue matter no matter who. LOL. <laughs> What's the whole vibe of the next cult movement going to be? Alan G says, after witnessing their performance at the inauguration membership in the Garth Brooks, Chris Gaines cult of split personality skyrocketed. David Z says, even toad ungulate impersonation. Uh, Caroline M says, it is here already. Q. Dan D says, cult of Trump is still thriving, neoliberalism, Bitcoin. The vibe is clearly going to be a cross between Ron Paul and Ted Nugent with a layer of Alex Jones, Trump sleaze on top. Hashtag crap sandwich. Uh, D.I. says, QAnon. Personally, do you ever uh, sing the song Rhiannon, but with QAnon? <laughs> Been doing that recently. Krimsky K says, the cult of Chuck, C-U-C, it's here. <laughs> And then finally, Kurt E. says, cult where members work constantly sacrificing the value you create with the faith that an unseen force will bring you back that value tenfold or even more like that exalted and blessed members. I don't think there's a name for it yet. 
I think that's a pyramid scheme, isn't it? You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio. You can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to either of us, chuck at thisishell.com or alex at thisishell.com. But we have to have your answer by the end of Thursday's show. Thanks to all of you for checking out all the ways you can support This Is Hell by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. Thanks for the very, very kind support we received this weekend from Kurt S., Elliot S., unrelated, and the tithing-like commitment of Brett B. Alex, please tell us who is on tomorrow's Tuesday show, also beginning at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Uh, real excited to have Keller Easterling back on the show to talk about her new book, Medium Design, Knowing How to Work on the World. Keller came up in our conversation with Mimi Scheller about uh, islands in the Caribbean and how they can... Show examples of alternative political processes and ways to organize against imperialism and colonialism. So we're going to have Keller on with her yeah, new we, book tomorrow. Yeah, we talked with her uh, February of 2015 yeah. about her book Extra Statecraft, which uh, that interview is a doozy. So if you get yeah, a chance, Mi- to Mimi search was, for her. It's great. Yeah, Mimi was uh, citing that interview in her book. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show podcast, whatever live stream host Chuck Mertz. Producing today's show is Alex Jerry. Thanks to Dr. Peter Bloom and Carl Rhodes, who are our guests today. Thanks to Alex Jerry. I would be thanking Ronaldo Magaldi right now for Rotten History, but Ronaldo took the week off. He's got a lot of work, real work, real work that he gets really paid for. So uh, he wasn't able to do Rotten History, but I just wanted to thank Ronaldo Magaldi, as always, for doing Rotten History throughout the year. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down. And my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell and to support the show, visit thisishell.com. <laughs>